Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Rice. Welcome to Access to Healthcare's weekly podcast, where we bring you local guests on a variety of topics of interest for you and your family. Today, we are talking about the psychological and physiological impact of racism and discrimination for people of color and the impact on their mental health. My guest is Nora Ann Brooklocker, a local licensed marriage and family therapist with Sierra Sunrise Wellness. Nora, you've been a guest on our program quite a few times. Um, I think we're about to wrap up this series for now. Uh, This is our second to the last. We're also going to talk about coping strategies a little later on in the week. But for today, we wanted to talk about some of the impact um, that are issues for people of color. And some of that is the issue of disparities in mental health um, and chronic stress. And certainly lately with the Black Lives Matter issue, it has brought up a lot of issues for people of color. And how does that stress affect them? Right, right. Yeah, this is this is a big one, um, and it's it's uh, particularly present and prevalent for for a number of people now. You know, this year has been a year in which a majority of people have been in a state of near constant fight, flight, or freeze, unable to fully relax, unable to feel that sense that it will all be okay. As we look at this long haul of uncertainty with so much happening that is out of our control, but um, this is an experience that many marginalized groups feel, whether it is 2020 or really any other year, turning on the news or even social media for that matter and learning about lynching another young person killed in a violent altercation with reasons behind that killing being extremely suspect um, or even being called nasty derogatory remarks, um, which might be a part of their near daily life experience. The truth of it is that racism is real. It hasn't suddenly disappeared. Um, There are real and definite ways in which it is indeed pervasive, and it causes that deep mental health uh, turmoil for those um, who, like any of us, just want to live their lives, preferably not in fear, (laughs) uh, to raise their babies. Again, preferably not in fear and to make the most of their existence without having to justify its importance. I think that's well put. We those of us that are not people of color, I, I will go out on a limb and say we don't have uh, an understanding of it, what really occurs for African Americans, for Hispanics, for people of color, or any marginalized uh, societal group. And uh, we have our own stressors, but there's no way that we can truly understand the kind of stress that people of color are under, and that affects both their physical and their mental health, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. Um, So if we go back to Maslow's hierarchy, which we touched on previously, at least in regard to the first three levels, which were level one, basic needs of food, water, shelter, level two, safety, and level three, love and belonging. Um, And then if we also add the other two levels at the top of the pyramid, uh, level four is esteem and level five is self-actualization. 
when there are systemic policies and infrastructure in place that makes it massively difficult to reach beyond level three, it means that stress remains cemented. Um, And I do want to state here that stress is absolutely a part of life for any human being. However, depending on what privileges that one has, whether recognized or not, it plays a huge role in determining what level of Maslow's hierarchy we are able to attain during our lifetime. Um, So, for example, if we're in a place of poverty without the ability to get out of it, regardless of how many jobs we work or how hard we try, um, that that would be one of those where the stressors um, are, are almost uh, disheartening to the point of, of but well, what is the point? And of course, we might see that higher suicidal rate um, in in situations such as that. And another big one here is that um, compared to white women, for example, black women are nearly three times as likely to die from domestic violence episodes. Um, We, of course, have touched previously on domestic violence, but um, I think that this is is one of those that is linked to higher levels of poverty, um, even sometimes a distrust in the legal system. Um, And I think that when it comes to looking at this from that mental health lens, there is also a distrust of um, even mental health professionals. I mean, the truth of it is, is that a huge amount of mental health professionals are predominantly white. And so I think in in trying to go to seek services, it can be really difficult to know, are they really going to be able to understand? And I, I fully agree with you as well, being a white person, I can't possibly know what that experience is like. And I don't want for my clients to have to sit in front of me and educate me when they're here for themselves to get their needs met. So it is very much, the onus is very much on me as a provider to learn as much as I possibly can. But the real lived experience is one that is very difficult to understand without actually experiencing it yourself. Well, one of the words that's been in the news lately is institutionalized racism. Um, which we, uh, you and I know, exist on a continual basis. And a person of color, I would imagine, between the institutionalized racism and an individual racism, there's a sense of giving up almost or of a quiet acceptance uh, that isn't really so quiet internally. But this is the way things Mm -hmm. are and this is the way things will always be. Uh, is that something that would truly affect somebody's mental health? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that when there is possibility for change, that, of course, is going to infuse hope. However, if it feels as if that is just an uphill battle that will never be fully achieved, then it can feel as if those efforts just really are... Um, without substance, I guess you could say. And that that's not at all true. I think the fact of the matter is is that this has been an ongoing battle for centuries at this point in time. And I think that this is one that a lot of people, again, would prefer to, to not have to keep looking at, not have to keep peeling back the layers on. But the problem is that the problems keep happening. If we look to... 
um, the the gentleman who was just simply birding uh, at, at the park, uh, Central Park in New York, and the woman who called uh, and made a, a report as to um, a, a black person that was coming after her. Um, and clearly that was a false report. But that is an example of, of not only um, is that privilege happening right yeah. as, as you can see it, but in addition to that, policy changes of false reporting. And, you know, now in our day and age with technology being what it is, to be able to film some of these um, interactions, I think people would say, oh, no, that doesn't happen. And then you see it. and Wow. Okay, that that definitely did happen. And I think that that is one of those things that is creating some level of change, but it's also creating some level of secondary trauma. You know, I, I mentioned just before about how people can turn on the media, um, you know, watching the news or just even going on social media. And um, I, I think that for those who are of the um, black population or people of color, it affects them differently because those are people that look like them. And, and it's this sense of, well, that certainly could happen to me or that could happen to my child or that could happen to my brother, my, my sister, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and that's one of the major pieces that I think people here are fighting for is just recognition and acknowledgement that these are realities. Well, of course, at my age, um, somebody at my age, 70, has lived through many, many uh, events in their lifetime uh, and arguably probably more than some other generations between Vietnam. But civil rights was one that my generation lived through. And I don't know the correct word except to say it's interesting, though I think it's sad and pathetic that here we are all of these years later still dealing with the same issue um, as we were dealing with uh, 40 years ago and well more than that uh, in the 60s and at that time we thought that change had happened so the interesting thing when you talk about change brings hope I would imagine it also can bring some despair because if it doesn't truly change, then what was all the fight for? What was all of the angst of the fight for? And here we are back with Black Lives Matter doing a fight. And most of us hope that this is the time that true change will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Despair. That's a great way to put it. Yes. Yes. I think um, certainly we hope that this time will be the time. But, you know, I, I think that that is the truth, that this is this is a continual uh, conversation to be had, that it's not just in the here and now that this resolution is going to come. I think that this is one that um, was put into place over centuries and that it very well might take more time for that to be something that continues to be dismantled. Um, But again, I think that there's still a a large majority of people who perhaps struggle to really look at it as an issue. 
And part of that then perpetuates that the the smaller microaggressions and things like that will continue to happen. Um, and I think that, quite frankly, I think that there's a lot of gaslighting that has occurred as well. So gaslighting is essentially this idea that we're saying that people's realities are not real. Um, and so I think that um, when it comes to uh, these experiences being demeaned, dismissed or invalidated by people who have not had those same experiences. Um, this is one of those where, where it's really a cleansing of the wound. I mentioned that analogy previously, and this is a very deep infection that isn't just simply going to go away. It is a long road to go. And yes, it is exhausting and daunting. And um, I think that there very well might be higher levels of depression and anxiety, um, just as I said before, for those who simply just want to live their lives and raise their families with joy and prosperity. Moments like these that we're having now, these are conversations that are necessary for for doing exactly that, um, for for being able to say, I I can do better. And I am willing to say that just like anybody in this world, I can do better tomorrow than I've done today. And I can look at the things that I've done in the past and say, oof, yep, nope, that was not okay. That was not okay. Whether it was intentional or not, you know, that's the other part here. I I was personally raised in a town of um, about 909 people, basically all white, um, and it was just extremely isolated. And I moved to Reno um, somewhere around eighth grade and thought, wow, this is so diverse. <laughs> and come to find out, oh, even Reno is not you know, particularly diverse. But I, I think over and over again, I've had my eyes just opened wide. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, I personally want to try to do better. Every opportunity that I have, I want to try to do better to make not only my life and my children's life as good as it possibly can be, but the lives of my community members, um, whomever they might be. Well, in Reno, we don't have a high percentage of African Americans. I believe it's it's 2 or 3%. But we do have a high population of Hispanics. And so when we talk about some of these issues of people of color and stress and the institutionalized racism and individual racism. We're also talking about what happens for the Hispanic population, aren't we? And certainly with the issue of the undocumented, we're talking about a population where many um, feel it absolutely necessary to stay in the shadows and to hide because they are so afraid. And that is a another different level of stress uh, than perhaps some other groups of people of color have to endure. And I think that the Hispanic population uh, has a very intense set of uh, PTSD that they endure, uh, as do the African-American and other people of color, don't you think? Yes. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. Um, you know, uh, the border issues would be an example of that, you know, talking about how there are people who um, have been detained at the border for potentially months, if not, in some cases, maybe years. 
you know, depending on, on the case and the situation. I can't, of course, speak to the details. A lot of times those details are, are very confidential. Um, but with that said, you know, there there are definite ways in which um, there are ways of talking about people um, and, and there might not be a realization of how cultural differences very well might play a part. Um, but when it comes to uh, when it comes to certain things, we we all have like a collective experience, right? And then there are certain other cultural collective experiences that we don't always know how to relate to. And I think that um, Native Americans would also be one of those populations, um, you know. And during COVID nineteen, especially, we're seeing some of these communities so hard hit by this disease, by this illness. Um, part of that might be because of um, the, the poverty levels or perhaps because um, many of these individuals are frontline essential workers whom we rely upon. And COVID-19, I think, has certainly really um, been a, a powerhouse to a degree anyway, if you will, of uncovering and allowing us to see how it is that our nation, our communities function because of these amazing individuals who are very much a part of it, um, but perhaps because of fears of discrimination or otherwise, perhaps um, in some ways they um, don't want to be seen <laughs> um, or perhaps put themselves out there less, um, depending, of course, on the person. Um, but I think each and every one of us has something really incredible to offer to one another if we just simply take the time to listen to one another's stories and experiences of what we have been through. Well, let's talk about the children and the effect on the children of the uh, social discrimination, uh, individual discrimination, uh, being raised in an environment where one has to talk to their children about staying safe. Um, and how how does that affect a child from PTSD, but also what we would call internalized racism? Um, internalized meaning that they've learned a way of life uh, and they accept it. And unfortunately, uh, it's a life based on on the effects of racism. What happens to our children? in uh, communities of color? So African-American youth who are exposed uh, to violence have a 25% greater risk of PTSD. Um, black adolescents and young adults are at a higher risk uh, for some of the most physically harmful form forms of violence, such as homicide, fights with injuries, aggravated assault, uh, compared to, to white people. In addition, black adults reported an exposure to a higher number of adverse childhood experiences than whites. Um, these adverse childhood experiences are positively associated with increased odds of self-reported coronary heart disease, fair or poor physical health, and experiencing frequent mental distress, heavy drinking, and current smoking. And, and those, you know, again, we'll get into our next podcast as far as coping strategies. In some cases, those are coping strategies. Um, you know, in terms of trying to alleviate uh, what comes along with PTSD. One of the, the 
things that um, was also a really deep uh, moment of realization was a, a friend of mine um, who was a, a Hispanic mom um, and who has a mixed race child. Um, she was describing she feels anticipatory grief all the time of what it is that her child might experience um in in going forward um you know whether it's receiving again some of these really nasty derogatory remarks um or perhaps um there are there are some cases where it's seen uh in either mental health settings or physical health settings medical uh settings where um people are not as highly believed you know that there there might be a greater accusation rate of um drug use um, I mean, there's there's so many different ways in which um, it really does play out. And I think one of the biggest things here are implicit versus explicit biases that, that people hold. Now, the ex- explicit biases are the really obvious, very nasty remarks um, and really trying to go out of one's way in order to, to do things that one might consider to be extremely uh, racist and um either passive aggressive or directly aggressive. Um, But then there's the implicit biases. And this is, I think, where a lot of work can be done. I think that um, just as you were describing for the childhood component of it, I think that we do tend to internalize things without realizing it from such an early age. Um, So I'd like to give a little uh, example of this. So um, there's this... A woman and she always cuts off the ends of her pot roast. And so somebody asks her, well, for what reason do you do that? She's like, huh, oh, I don't know. I guess my mom always did it, so that's why I do it. So they go and ask the mom, and the mom says, well, my mom always did it, so, hmm, uh, yeah, I don't know. And so they go to the grandma, and she says, well, my mom too, yeah, she always did it. So they go to the great-grandma, and she says, well, my pan was too small. <laughs> that is just one of those very small, small examples of how um, that that's what's called an introject. And we pull forward these introjects along our lifetime, certain things that we just consider to be quote-unquote normal. We don't think to question. We, we don't necessarily have reason to do so until it's brought to our attention. And one of the biggest things that we can do is especially with kiddos, because kiddos will ask questions. There are probably many kiddos right now, regardless of race, who are asking these questions like, what is going on? What is this about? And I think it's it's being willing to have the conversation with them and to say that there there has been a very long history of really awful, awful things happening, occurring, and we still have a long ways to go. I think that, um, so I I also previously mentioned the ripple effect and uh, what we do in our lifetime can affect the next seven generations. If we pull that back seven generations ago, that puts us somewhere around the Civil War. I mean, holy cow. (laughs) So we have absolutely come a very long way since the Civil War. But if we think of seven generations from now, where it is that we still have the potential to go, I am hopeful. I am very hopeful that 
there will come a point where it isn't just a matter of um, one race versus another. But I will say that children as young as two notice differences between people, whether it's color of hair, hair type, gender, or what have you. And I think that um, that's not to say that any of these qualities are good, bad, right, or wrong. It's perhaps to learn how to celebrate our differences. So, Nora Ann, this is such a powerful conversation, and there's so many facets to this. Uh, You and I know that. But let's talk about what we can do right now today. Uh, As people, what can we do? What can we do in our community um, to support our people of color and to educate as to why we need to support our people of color? I'm really grateful to be able to have this conversation. And I'm going to be fully honest with you that I was hesitant because part of me as as being a, a white person myself wonders what business do I have in speaking to these issues. But with that said, I think that only perpetuates these problems by not being willing to speak up and say there is a problem. And as a mental health advocate, there is a problem. I want for people to feel safe and being able to discuss these issues with their providers and to be seen and to be um, have that space held for them just as any other client. And, and I think that sometimes these are discussions that we refrain from, um, perhaps because we don't know how to have these conversations. And so I think that the more that we can do to educate ourselves, the more that we can do, again, just simply to listen, not from a defensive space. You know, when we're listening from a defensive space, that's when we're typically going to pull apart what somebody else is saying and say, oh, well, that's not true, or oh, that's not true, or hey, I've got this statistic, or what have you. And and really, I think that instead, we um, can do better when it comes She's simply saying, wow, that has been your lived experience. And when it comes down to it, it's finding those areas where we can be of support. This is a perfect example of increasing our level of community care. And um, I think that when, when it comes to the statements of, say, the all lives matter, I think that that is very accurate and yet there are still so many lives that are being overlooked and by not being willing to show up to the conversation is simply, again, perpetuating these issues for a longer and longer period of time. So I am very grateful to whomever has been willing to listen and I hope that we will be able to continue um, to increase these trust levels as we just show up. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Noran, for having this uh, very important conversation. I think you've done a marvelous job explaining some of what we can do, explaining some of the inequities, um, and my hope is that this podcast will be listened by quite a few people. We've been talking about the psychological effects of racism and discrimination on communities of color with Nora Ann Brooklocker, licensed marriage and family therapist who's here locally with Sierra Sunrise Wellness. For a list of our podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast. And again, Noran, thank you so much for having this conversation. 
and for all of the podcasts that we've done together. Thank you as well, Sherry. I truly, truly appreciate being able to hold this space with you. Be safe, everybody, and please wear your mask.